0: Joshua Bennett's latest poetry collection is Ode, that's O-W-E-D. The book is a series of odes, lyric poetry in the form of an address to a particular subject, but it's also about what is owed to black Americans during this time of racial reckoning. The poems reveal Bennett's ideas about how we first mend the relationships between ourselves and our families and our communities, but also how we preserve what is the most vulnerable commodity for Black Americans, the Black imagination, a focus on the stories and experiences of Black Americans. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. Joshua Bennett's poetry collection, Ode, stands on its own as a testament to the power of the Black imagination. The subjects range from Black lives and reparations to poems about everyday items like his grandmother's couch or the 99-cent store in his neighborhood. Here's Joshua Bennett with an ode to a barbershop in his poem, *Barber Song*.
1: This is Barbara Song*. Postmodern Blackness blacksmith, straight razor reshaping self-esteem. You dream in geometries unreachable by any other means. Speak and entire phrase's abandoned standard American etymology. Hence, you liberate waves from the sea. Corn rose from the cornfield. Reclaim fade, so I now hear the word and imagine only abundance. Caesar never meant anything to me, but a cut so close you could see the shimmer of a man's thinking. You are how we first learned to bend language built to unmake us, except in plausible risk. Some much older man, shaver in hand like a baton full of wasps gossip, asking with the grain or against, and the question feels damn near existential, given this is the only place we can live in such thoughtless proximity to another person's open hands be held by the face Ask outright to be made glamorous, shaped by your polymathic brilliance, you bi-weekly psychoanalyst, first stop before funeral, before wedding and block party alike. You soothsayer, cooing children to calm as they sit in the chair for the first time, as still a storm as one might reasonably expect. You ethicist, defending hairlines at all costs, your vigilance keeping online and otherwise slander at bay. Philosopher king, thesaurus in the drawer, dominoes and scotch and Barbasol adorning your countertop right above the chorus line of clippers swaying to the clamor of checkmates and offhand insults now filling the shop, each moving as if the unfettered locks of some great metal monster, some faraway watcher, and you, guardian of it all, clean as a pope.
0: I spoke to Joshua Bennett recently and asked him to describe the photo on the cover of his book.
1: So this photo was taken in 1992 by my mother, uh, who's incredible in so many different ways, including, you know, her talents as a photographer. Um, And yeah, it's just this sort of honest, intimate moment with me and my father. I'm eating what looks like macaroni and cheese, collard greens, and uh, cornbread off his plate. And um, the title, Ode, Is largely for me not just a play on words, right? A play on Ode, Ode, the sort of poem of celebration, but it's also about thinking about these poems as poems of repair, Um, poems that are meant to celebrate sites, uh, people, spaces, things that have been historically denigrated, um, including, you know, the kind of intimacy that we see on this cover. Um, And lastly, yeah, this is a book in many ways about my father. you know, the Vietnam War that integrated his high school in Alabama. And I think in so many ways, this book is about what is owed uh, to people like him, um, to the, the working and poor people of the United States um, who have every day survived. What they were never meant to survive.
0: Well, I think about this kind of dual perspective of the way that your book points to the past and this American history of brutality, but also toward this sort of possibilities of the future because of the people you celebrate in your book, like your father. and You mentioned he was a military veteran. Um, and also he worked for the U.S. Postal Service, which is a, a detail I find really fascinating uh, in our current times. Um, so uh-huh. h- what are your feelings about what's been happening along the lines of not just what happens in the United States to black Americans, but also military veterans, and then what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service. Is that just a very personal thing for you because of your dad?
1: No, for sure. Uh, I mean, my parents also, uh, I mean, they met uh, at a club, but <laughs> they um, they fell in love in many ways at the Postal Service. You know, they, they both worked at the post office um, in, in Midtown, New York, and so I'm in many ways uh a product of that, of the fact that the United States Postal Service is also a way for many Black Americans to enter uh, the middle class, you know. um, And my father's veteran status was part of the way that, you know, my my mom purchased our our home um, in in Yonkers, New York. And so, yeah, part of what I'm thinking about, of course, in this moment is sort of assault on the the basic infrastructure that helps make uh, life possible for us here in this country. Uh, On a personal note, there was a great deal of pride I took, actually, as a, as a small boy in the fact that um, anyone who got a love letter, <laughs> who got a scholarship in the mail, I felt like that was tied to my, my father uh, and the work he did as a mail handler. You know, I, I always thought of what he did as sort of um, real work, uh, you know, and I know that's maybe a, a problematic formulation, but over and against, you know, even my life now as a, as a writer and academic, I think often about what it means that uh, the man who raised me would carry a sort of hundred pound bag of mail every day for uh, about 10 hours a day for 40 years at night back and forth between a conveyor belt and a truck. Um, And he didn't, you know, always enjoy that job, but that taught me something about what it meant to invest in one's family. I'm going to make sacrifices for the future. So um, I I think quite a bit about the the postal service and um, what it's meant to my family um, and, and to the possibility of me building my own, you know, so it's on my mind often.
0: Listening to you talk about your dad reminds me of your poem, America Will Be. Um, Uh. The idea about everything that your father has endured, born in the throat of Jim Crow, Alabama, one line goes, one of ten children, their bodies side by side in the kitchen each morning like a pair of hands exalting. And it goes on also to describe the things that he experienced in school and... The loneliness, the hands holding the pens that stabbed him as he walked through the hallway that th- this idea about the institution that is the u s. Postal service and the institution of uh, the American education system, um, and your father sort of in these in these worlds. Um, I found that particular poem very touching in terms too, of the way that. N- you are an academic you are a scholar mm-hmm. and and you are also about to be a father um and uh-huh. just sort of thinking about all of these uh, cycles and all of all of these shared experiences and then maybe the experiences again as we said the ways that your book celebrates also the looking ahead and the possibility of the future
1: hmm what a beautiful question. Yeah, I mean, I I chose this book cover uh, almost a year and a half ago. <laughs> I, I had no idea I was going to have a, a child on the way. I had no idea I'd have a son on the way. So it, it resonates so much differently now, of course, <laughs> right, um, that he's due, you know, next month, um, by my son. And seeing this book come into the world right before him it makes me think about all the memories I have with my father, good and bad. Um, And the fact that my father was the first person I called um, when I found out I was going to become a father. Mm. Um, And that the advice he gave me, much like the way he talks about integrating his high school, uh, was not heroic at all. It it was largely about uh, failure and persistence. You know, he just said, you're not always going to get it right, but you always have to try again. And I think that captures so much of the spirit of um, his example, the example he set out for me. Right, which was not uh, always about excellence or aspiration. <laughs> you know, th- those are quite important to me in other ways, especially in terms of my writing and scholarship. Like I, you know, I aspire toward excellence every day. But I think what makes it possible for me to actually be a scholar and teacher in the everyday um, is that my father always taught me that I could come home. You know, that sort of didn't matter <laughs> if I was famous or people thought I was smart or anything like that. And so. Yeah, when I think about becoming a father, those are the kind of lessons I, I hope to lay out for my boy, you know, that it's ultimately about uh, whether or not you're kind to people. That's the measure of a human life. Are you good? Are you decent? Um, did you love somebody? Did you commit um, to the joy of the world? You know, so th- th- that's that's on my mind every single day, um, especially these past couple weeks.
0: I'm thinking now about a poem I read online of yours called Dad Poem, Ultrasound Number 2, um, and uh-huh. you described this social distancing situation at the hospital. So you wrote this a, a, a year and a half ago, right? And didn't know you would have a son on uh, on the way at this point, uh, right as your, your book emerges in the world. Um, but uh-huh. you couldn't have known there'd be this incredibly intense summer of protests and this yeah. pandemic. So those are also these other things now um, on top of everything else, right, um, mm. that that parents uh, have to worry about. So I know you've considered this idea. Um, I have a little insight into it because I read this poem. Um, so I'm thinking about the ways that the legacies to our children are just even more complicated than people can ever imagine.
1: Right. No, right. I mean, it's, um, yeah, sorry. Um, it's, it's been a summer marked by, um, these moments of both incredible triumph and tragedy, but almost all mediated through a screen. So my, um, my grandmother passed at sort of the outset of the pandemic and, um, we attended, I mean, she's in that, that poem you mentioned, and, you know, I attended my wife and I, we attended her funeral via zoom, you know, and then that link failed and we went to my cousin's Facebook live. Right. And I've, I've thought a lot about the fact that I experienced both, you know, that event, that catastrophic uh, world shifting event and, you know, seeing George Floyd killed. Um, and, you know, I saw my, my son's, ultrasound through a screen, right? All, all of those moments were, were marked by this incredible distance, right? Sort of Black death and, and, and Black life. Um, and it's and it's incredible, irreducible emergence. I mean, it, this summer has been marked, you know, for, for me and marred um, by all those forms of distance. And, and um, yeah, I, the legacy we, we leave, I, I hope, or the legacy I leave in particular for my, my son, I hope, is one of forging intimacy in the midst of it. Right, if that makes sense, that part of the spirit I'm trying to capture in that poem is that something quite miraculous happened, which is that I I did almost feel like I was in the room, right? Which is not the feeling I I had with that funeral, right? When my wife snuck in this phone to FaceTime me, um, and the radiologist sort of conspired with her to do it. (laughs) She helped her figure out, you know, the angles so I could see all the screens and see my son's heartbeat and sort of walk me through the process and. It just felt like this moment of real moral courage and imagination that said, we are not going to deny ourselves this human moment. I mean, I know my, my husband can't be in here, but we're going to find a way for him to at least you know, feel some of it, right? Just even a, a glimpse, a brief window into what's happening here. And so I, I hope that, that that's the kind of legacy I leave too, just meditative tenacity, persistence, and um, imagination under duress you know, because I think the summer has also been marked by that for me. Is just people really stepping up, the the generosity, even of people that have sent us gifts, you know, when they found out the news, strangers that read that poem and told me they weren't able to be present when their partners gave birth and that they were just in solidarity with me from a great distance. You know, I never would have imagined that would have been possible. So it's been an incredible uh, time in that way, even in the midst of great catastrophe.
0: This idea of the things that we refuse to deny ourselves right now, that's uh, that's extremely um, important, I think, for all of us right now. So it makes me think about what I've read about your life um, and all of those moments where you refuse to deny yourself what you have due you, what you are owed. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. You performed in 2009 at the White House before yes. President Obama. I considered the ways very recently um, that the cast of Hamilton did that near the end of his presidency and how how sort of magical that was and how, you know, sort of thinking about, well, that would never happen in uh, in the current presidency. Um but mm. you, you were there at the beginning of it. You were there at the beginning of uh, of the Obama presidency 11 years ago. Who could know where we would be today in 2020 when you were up there um, sharing your talent with everyone? Do you think about that night often now since just because of where we are? Mm.
1: I mean, I think about it most often in conversations like this, you know, or or especially when people ask me questions about what art is for, because my mother was my plus one that night. Uh, And I, my most distinct memory, I mean, you would think it would be seeing the president, right? But actually um, one of my most distinct memories is um, shopping for the suit I wore to the white house with my mother at our local mall um, and the look on her face when I was on stage Mm -hmm. and, um, her coming to rehearse my poem with me um, before I went up. And so, yeah, I mean, I think so much of our cultural moment right now is marked not just by the degradation of of language, right, which that night was supposed to celebrate, right, the evening of poetry and music and spoken word, but also by a kind of pervasive callousness, right? And I think that was a night where everything felt possible, right, that my mother from the South Bronx who is, you know, uh, walking with her viola to Carnegie Hall, you know, um, that she would be with me in the White House um, with some of my heroes like Saul Williams. is completely unthinkable, right? And, and unprecedented in so many ways. And um, so, yeah, when I think about the possibilities of that night and where we are now, it, um, it it feels tragic to me, right? in a kind of genre sense, like we've lost something we've loved. But it also just reminds me that... Um, I don't know that that all sorts of futures are possible too, right? that pendulum swing in all sorts of directions and um, that the that whoever sits at the helm of the state, they don't control everything, they can't control our imaginations, they can't control the way we organize and take care of one another, right. Um, They can certainly hinder it right they can certainly, you know, bring the iron force of the state down upon it but. There's always that human will to live um, and that human will to celebrate, too, which is what that night was about for me. You know, as much as anything else, it was about celebrating my mother and saying, this is what all your work was for, so that you could be here with me in this triumphant moment. Um, Even as a 20-year-old, you know, I felt that. And um, that was a real, you know, moment of, of change for me. You know, my career sort of completely shifted after that. So I'm thankful for it.
0: When you were in college, you very nearly gave up the idea of going to graduate school, and in fact, you <laughs> you had this moment of faltering at Princeton, even. But you went back. So, I've I've seen some videos online where you're directly addressing young people, um, and you you teach young people, and you're a role model for them, and maybe a reluctant role model, right? But you are. Um, it's really, it doesn't take much, I think, for a young person to to give up on college. Not much at all. I mean, and here we have the, the pandemic and this terrible situation with the economy. It wouldn't take much for somebody just to defer that dream for a little while more. Um, and you, you've you been through so much on this journey through Ivy League schools and this long trajectory of your education. I want to know the message from you about these moments of questioning your place in higher education. Um, I'm thinking about your poem, Ode to Pedagogy. Um, I'd like to, I don't know, just a just some quick Insight that you can share that's maybe on your mind right now as you prepare to re enter that space in higher ed again? What are you thinking about?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, first, I just want to say this is one of the best researched interviews I've ever done in my life. I was <laughs> trying to figure out how to that knowing you're Oh, oh I,
0: I have many oh, more questions. <laughs>
1: oh, okay, no, this is just incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, just quickly, then, I'll, I'll say that. Um, mentorship uh friendship kinship makes all the difference right that both in the case of that ode to pedagogy poem my big sister you know is the person that taught me how to read and how to write and how to walk and how to do long division right and uh, she she was the first great educator i knew right and the intimacy of that relationship taught me that with language you could do anything right she was also the first poet i knew um when it came to princeton Imani Perry, my dissertation advisor at the time um, and the the, the co-chair of my dissertation, she said, you know, you can leave here if you want, but you have to do it on your own terms. You can't do it, you know, just because people are cruel um, or just because people don't understand your ideas or take them seriously at this moment, because you'll regret that. You'll regret that you essentially let other people make the decision for you. And that's just stuck with me ever since. You know, Imani didn't know me (laughs) You know what I mean like she hadn't she hadn't taught me really before but she was someone whose work I admired and um whose brilliance as a teacher and mentor you know was was well known throughout campus and that piece of advice and the support she's shown me since even now you know, I graduated from Princeton four years ago um and Imani is still such a vibrant presence in my life and is uh just always there you know um even just in the background just urging me to keep going keep writing keep thinking keep living and so the advice I would give is to find your people wherever you are, um, because that's just what has made all the difference for me. It's not just that I'm some, you know, very sharp, resilient person. I would actually say that my story is, is not marked by that, um, but rather by uh, the incredible kindness, not, not just of, of strangers, but, but um, you know, sometimes people I knew very well um, who maybe had a certain vision of me in their mind. Um, but when that vision failed, when it turned out, um, that I actually really needed help, those people were there for me to help lift me up. So I think we all need that. I think the idea of the kind of self-made individual is a dangerous fiction. I think it's murderous. I think it destroys people's dreams and uh, their sense of who they are. You know, we need each other. Um, and so that, that's what marks my story, and that's the advice I would give. You know, find your people uh, who don't just understand you but care about you and who love you enough to tell you the truth, even when that truth is difficult, um, because that's what made all the difference for me.
0: What do you want readers to know walking into this book, Ode, about this short series of reparation poems?
1: Mm. Yeah, goodness. Uh, So what I want people to know about those poems is that what began as a a meditation on the kind of material redistribution of wealth um, that will have to happen, I think, for this country to heal, right? Sort of, you know, reparations at the highest level across the board um, for Black Americans who are the descendants of, of enslaved peoples. I think alongside that, we need an aesthetics of repair, right? So though the, the poems begin by talking about reparations in a more traditional sense, what you eventually see is me thinking about my relationship to um, my father, my relationship to my mother, my relationship to therapy, <laughs> and thinking about the various other modes of interpersonal repair, um, but also sort of, um, how to say this, it's kind of psychic repair, right? Like for, for Black people, that will be necessary, I think, for for us in order to heal, and I think for the nation more more broadly to heal, right? We have a a gap in the symbolic order, right? There is a space sort of where everything negative is assigned to Blackness, right? There's that classic scene in the autobiography of Malcolm X, where he sort of goes through the dictionary and he sees all the words associated with the word Black, and they're all negative, right? Um But I think that that's something that lingers with us still. And that's a kind of, again, psychic work. That's a kind of soul work that's going to have to happen. So that's what I'm trying to undertake in those poems under the heading of of reparation.
0: Joshua, thanks so much for talking to us today.
1: Oh, it's an honor and pleasure. This is incredible.
0: That was Joshua Bennett discussing his poetry collection, Ode. Though Joshua Bennett wrote these poems over a year ago, I marveled at the resonances the poems hold for today, including this one. Here's Joshua Bennett with another poem from the book, Ode.
1: For Chadwick and, and many more, the panther is a virtual animal, with a line from Tavia Nyong'o. Anything that wants to be can be a panther. The black lion or ocelot, the black cheetah or cornrowed uptown girl, sprinting down her neighborhood block just like one in dogged pursuit of the future world. In this frame, I imagine Huey and Bobby as boys in the sense of gender and genre alike, an unbroken line reading, my life is an armor for the other. Before black berets or free breakfast, then, there is friendship. Before gun laws shifting in the wake of organized strength, leather jackets shimmering like gypsum in the Northern California twilight, Or else magazine covers running the world over, compelling everyday ordinary people across the spectrum of context or color to sing, Who wants to be a panther, ought to be, he can be it, there is love. The panther is a virtual animal. The panther strikes only when it has been assailed. The panther is a human vision, interminable refusal, our common call to adore ourselves as what we are and live and die. On terms we fashioned from the earth like this. Our precious metal metonym. Our style of fire and stone.
0: Joshua Bennett is the author of the poetry collection, Ode. It's published by Penguin Poets. Joshua Bennett is the author of The Sobbing School and Being Property Once Myself, Blackness, and the End of Man. He is currently Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. Write to us at bookpublic at TPR.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Eva de